As you reach for your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 17, as well as get your pen and your notes ready, um, think with me, with me for just a moment, would you, about some of the great occasions in our Bibles where God showed up. Often it was when His people were in an extreme time of need. You know the stories. How about um, Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, They just get out in the nick of time. They find themselves trapped by the Red Sea, desert on either flank. The dust and the noise of Pharaoh's approaching army is becoming very real. And all looks lost. They had to wonder, don't you think? Why would God do this? Why would God bring us out of Egypt just to have us slaughtered here in the desert? And that's exactly what they asked Moses. They didn't know what to do. You do know that these are not just good time, bedtime stories, right? This is real history that really happened. We sometimes forget the, the, the chokehold of terror that must have been at the throats of the daddies as they gathered their family around. They could hear and see Pharaoh's army approaching. There is evidently no good answer by the leadership of the land. They have nowhere to go. It is over. And then God shows up. You know the story. The sea opens on dry land. They walk across. They get through. Pharaoh's army's chasing them. The water comes together. They are drowned. There is great victory. And think about how strong their faith was right then. We know God is real. We know it's real. We were there. We saw it with our own eyes. And how powerful that was. For about three days, of course, till they got hungry and thirsty. And there's other great stories like that. One of my favorites is... In the book of Daniel, with these three great young men, you know them, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Hebrew given names. They're they're names that reflect Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar renamed them after the pagan gods of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember how that story went. Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge statue out on the plain of Dura. They refuse to bow down. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. It's a huge kiln um, with air vent openings in the side. The soldiers who bind Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah literally die from the blast of heat. I take it that their skin and their faces melted and they died from the heat in throwing these men into this seven times hotter than hot furnace. There are examples of them today in present-day Babylon, and you can look through the air vents and look right in. And there's Nebuchadnezzar and his entourage observing this moment. And there's Shadrach, there's Meshach, there's Abednego. Wait a minute. Did we not throw three men into the fire? And there's that moment and God showed up. You know... The young men thought they were going to die. You know that, right? But they would rather die than disobey. And then God comes and he rescues. And how encouraging it was to their faith. And it is to this day to our faith. The only thing they lost were the ropes that bound them. They didn't even smell like smoke when they got out of the fire. There was a pre-incarnate 
demonstration of God's power as evidently the second member of the Godhead before the incarnation comes, rescues them and delivers them out of the fiery furnace. God showed up. And I think there's people here today that wish God would show up in their lives. And you want to believe? You want to follow Christ? And you're pretty sure the Bible's probably right, but it's hard to understand. And you just wonder, how do I know what to believe? How do I know what is real? And you wish that God would come and deliver you, and you wish He would answer your prayer in some specific great way that would just bolster your faith, and it would be so real and so evident that God showed up right here. I know it's true. I saw Him. It was right there. It was real. I know it. I felt it. I experienced it. And that's what we're looking for, isn't it? That experience. But God has chosen to reveal himself mostly through his word. You do need to realize as well that these great occurrences where God showed up, they were really pretty rare in scripture. I mean, we put them together in storybook form and we have a lot of them to tell, but there were sometimes hundreds of years in between times when God showed up. And they just had his word. They had revelation. They had a prophet who spoke and they were held accountable for that. As we look at Matthew chapter 17 this morning, I want you to have this mindset and I want you to see that God shows up in Matthew 17. I want you to see what's going to happen here. I have to tell you that as I was preparing a couple weeks ago and working into this passage, getting ready for these messages and reading, it occurred to me that I don't know if I've ever heard a message on Matthew 17 and the transfiguration of Christ. We all know about it. We've seen the artwork and we know, but I'm telling you, it's really weird. It's just a weird story. And not only have I maybe never really heard or gotten a message on it before, I wasn't sure what it was all about as I was jumping into it and reading. And the more I read, the more I began to see what an awesome moment it really was. It was limited. There were only three guys there, Peter, James, and John. Let's read the text. And in fact, it is interesting that Jesus invited Peter, James, and John to accompany him up to this mountain. And then God's going to show up there in a very real and special way. We're going to try to figure out this morning why he did it this way. But what's interesting is that of the three who went, Peter, James, and John, John is the only one who wrote a gospel account. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not there that day. And they wrote about, evidently in second person, they were not there, so they wrote about it after the fact, what they heard. John, who was there, chose, under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, to omit it from his gospel. So we have this account in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. And in fact, and we risk a little bit of redundancy, but I think you're going to see that it is helpful for us to read all three accounts to pick up some of the nuance of this passage. It is a most remarkable story. Let's read Matthew's account, and then we're going to read the other three. Um, I'm going to answer a couple questions as we begin to read, so I'll interrupt myself right away. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, so let's just stop there and let's just answer a couple questions. The first one I've already alluded to, why did Jesus only 
invite three men to come? Well, the Bible doesn't say. We're going to see in a later passage. I'm going to suggest why. I don't know for sure. We do know that they were sort of the three amigos. They, they are notable in their closeness to Christ. Um, we also will find out at the end of our passage that our Lord did not want this to spread. He knows what's going to happen and he didn't want it talked about. And I guess it's easier to keep three guys quiet about something than it is a dozen guys. Um, I'll suggest in a minute as we read later why else I think it only ended up being three. It, it also says that Jesus led them up to a high mountain. Some of you have been to the Holy Land and you've been to the Mount of Transfiguration. Be careful about tipping your guide when he points that out to you because we don't know. The Bible really doesn't say. It, what we do know is it was a really high mountain. And that's it. And that's evidently enough. We don't know. They suggest, and it's, it's fruitless to suggest, it's not really that important. So that answers a couple of quick questions as we begin. Six days after being his teaching in chapter 16. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents or tabernacles here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Don't you agree with me? That's a little bit of a weird story. I mean, this glow, you know, and Elijah and Moses showing up. Uh, let's read uh, Mark's account. Mark and Luke, by the way, both accounts are in chapter 9, so that's easy to mark. So let's go to Mark chapter 9, and let's read there, beginning with verse 2, Mark's gospel account of this same event. It's a parallel account. They're reporting on the same exact occurrence. The benefit for us in reading these passages is that we pick up additional information before we plunge into our study, and it helps us uh, to have a better grasp on exactly what's happening. Mark begins almost identically to Matthew, and he says in verse 2 of Mark 9, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant. Now Mark adds just a little bit. Intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. It's a little more clear in Mark's account as well that it, it does not appear that P 
Peter, James, and John got to interact with Moses and Elijah, but that this was a conversation going on with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And now we know why he said that, because isn't that a strange thing to say? Now, it could be in relation to the calendar year, and they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. The idea that they celebrated God's provision in the wilderness and that they lived in temporary abodes. And this was a joyful occasion where uh, the, the Israelite nation celebrated God's provision and they built little twig huts out in their backyard and kind of camped out for a week. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Everybody get together Memorial Day weekend and we'll camp out. It'll be fun. And they celebrate God's goodness. And so some commentators equate that Peter had that on his mind, but Mark adds, verse 6, for he did not know what to say, and they were terrified. You know Peter, Peter just had to say something. He's scared, man, he's a big, strong guy, and he's scared, and he has to just process verbally, and out it comes. How about, and at some level... He's recognizing Moses, Elijah, and Jesus together. And he's thinking, this is a really good thing. We could just stay right here. But Mark says he didn't know what to say. And so that's what he said. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice, verse 7, came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Isn't that interesting? So once again, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, communicates to his disciples. And this is important for our message today. And understanding the end of Matthew's passage. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, communicates that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to die, and the disciples just do not get this. You need to understand that the main reason they don't get that is because they are believing that this is Messiah, and they cannot fathom how it is that you can be Messiah and you can die. Okay, that can't happen. doesn't fit together. How could Messiah be killed by people? He's Messiah. And so they're pondering that among themselves, it says. So verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now over to Luke chapter 9, and let's quickly review Luke's passage, and then we'll go back to Matthew 17 and to our notes, and let's figure out what in the world is going on in this strange scene. We're in Matthew, Luke chapter 9, did I say 7? Luke 9, and it begins with verse 28 in Luke chapter 9. This is an interesting start up here to Luke's account. Now, you recall that Luke would not have been with the disciples. He was not one of the disciples. When you read the opening paragraph, the opening sentences of the Gospel of Luke, he's writing to a friend, Theophilus, and he's writing an orderly account that he has researched out about the life and ministry of Christ. So he has done interviews, and he's writing an orderly account. And he writes down, now about eight days after these sayings. So after this challenge passage of the hard saying of Christ... Take up your cross and follow me. 
Matthew and Mark both said in six days Jesus went. Now Luke is saying in about eight days. Now a lot of people who are skeptical of Scripture love this kind of thing and they love to point at it and say, oh, there you go, Pastor Van. You guys say the Bible doesn't have mistakes and errors and there it is. You can't trust the Bible. Look at that. Six days, eight days. It's not to worry, you see, because Luke kept us off the hook by using the word about. Right? About eight days. This is a personality thing. To me, six days is about eight days. I mean, now to my wife Janet, no, six days is six days. If I say I'm coming home at 7 o'clock, and I come home at 7.03, her voice is trembling, she's distressed, and she, she's trying to understand how her husband of 32 years could lie to her and deceive her. You lied to me. Babe, I didn't lie to you. How did I lie to you? You lied to me. You said you would be home at 7 o'clock and it's 7.03. You lied. It's not 7 o'clock, it's 7.03. So now I say like, I'll be home between 3 p.m. and 10 p.m. And somewhere in there I'll show up. It is a personality thing. If you're very precise, this kind of thing really bothers you. Six days, six days, eight days, about eight days. Some Bible commentaries say that suggest that they actually walked to this mountain and at the base of the mountain the disciples stayed and Jesus then called out the three to go with him and that they're extended into part of a day to go up on the mountain that they were there through the night and they came back the next day and that that added parts of two days to make it about eight days. So you know what? We have a lot bigger fish to fry than that. And Luke just said it was about eight days. So it was about between six and eight days. That's not difficult, is it? Let's not get hung up on that. After these sayings that he took with him, verse 28, Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. Ha! I think we just found out why only three guys went along. You know, the disciples were human too, weren't they? And they've had prayer times with Jesus and how many of you, uh, you know, they say, hey, come on, we're going to have an all night prayer meeting, guys. Let's go. Everybody want to go. And at best, his three closest get with him and go. The rest all of a sudden came up with a sore throat and needed extra rest. It's just hard to pray all night. It's, it's not that fun, you know. Why don't you get together? Let's go up on the mountain and we're going to have a prayer meeting into the night. You know, I think I'm just going to rest here tonight. So that could be part of the reason why only three disciples went along with Jesus. We don't know, it doesn't say. And as he was praying, the appearance, verse 29, of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now Luke is telling us what they talked about more specifically, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So the word departure there is capturing, there's going to be a change, and they're discussing all of what's going to come to be in Jerusalem. Hold on to this thought, and we're going to encounter this again in our notes. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Whoa. They're supposed to be praying, they fall asleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, You know, Master, don't let him go, is what he's saying. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. 
One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Again, Luke adds, not even knowing what he said. It's possible what that means is that he said something, and if you ask him, Peter, what did you just say? He wouldn't even remember what he just said. He's stunned. He's terrified. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now back to Matthew 17, and let's break down this fascinating passage, and let's see what we understand it to be presenting. Um, I've titled the message, Confused but Convinced, because I believe even after this occurrence, the disciples, I think the point of the occurrence, by the way, is that they are becoming more and more convinced that Jesus is the Christ. I think that's the point of the whole transfiguration. And that's part of why he had Peter, James, and John come. Some commentaries suggest that James was included because after Christ's ascension into heaven, after his resurrection, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and then the church begins to grow and the apostles become mighty preachers of the gospel, James is going to be one of the very first martyrs of the preachers of the gospel of the early church. And James is going to go first, and our Lord in his omniscience knows this, and he wants to encourage James' heart to know that he's dying for the real deal. I really am the Christ, don't doubt that. Remember how John the Baptist sent his servants to Jesus? And he said, are you the, really the Christ, or are we supposed to watch for someone else? And Jesus confirmed the message You don't have to doubt. This whole passage is God showing up in a very specific and real way to strengthen the faith of these disciples. Let's break it down and let's see five convincing ways and proofs, I call them, that Jesus shows himself to be the Christ or that God in revealing Christ here shows Jesus to be the Messiah. The first is the transformation of Christ himself. The transformation of Christ himself. We're now back in Matthew 17. We know that there's six days after Jesus is teaching at the end of chapter 16. He's got Peter, James, and John with him. They're up on a high mountain and verse 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. I mean, this is woo, isn't it? What is going on? It's evidently late into the night. It is dark, so the light really has an effect. And Jesus is literally transformed right in front of them. And this is their buddy. This is their master, their teacher. They've been with him full time for two and a half years at this point. And then all of a sudden, he shows himself in a way that I had no idea you could look like that, Jesus. Now, I don't want to be sacrilegious or corny. It's a little bit like having Clark Kent for your buddy. And then somebody says, did you know that Clark is Superman? And you say, no, he's not Superman. That guy over there with the black glasses? Yeah, that's Superman. And he hears the conversation and Clark, he takes his finger and he waves to you, come over. He says, dude, there's a phone booth up the street, come with me. And they walk up the street to this phone book, phone booth. And he does his whirly jig thing, and bam, he's Superman. And you're standing there, and you're like, whoa. 
It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It is Superman. And you know this guy's Clark Kent. And now he's Superman. Well, that's what you need to know just happened in the garden. I don't in any way want to slight scripture or be sacrilegious, but that's the kind of thing. What, what is going on here? You see, transfiguration, by definition, means a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. It's a positive thing. So this transformation was a transfiguration, the idea that it, tra- it changed form. It's also helpful for us to understand that the Greek word that is translated in verse uh, 3, um, verse 2, transfiguration, is the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. So that's where the Superman illustration kind of comes in. To be one thing and to turn into another thing. To be transformed. Maybe the better illustration is that of just the, the woolly worm, right? The little caterpillar. And he's living his life. And if nobody runs over him or squishes him with a lawnmower, he's going to find his way into a pile of lumber alongside the shed. And you're going to be pulling lumber or a piece of firewood down. And you're going to see a little fuzzy cotton ball in the corner stuck and adhered tight to the underside of a board. Because Woolly Worm has spun himself a cocoon, right? And then if you could stay there and observe, or if you don't wipe it away or throw it in the fire and burn him, he's going to chew his way out of his woolly cocoon. Is Woolly Worm going to crawl out of that cocoon? No. He has, he has been transfigured. He has been transformed. There has been a metamorphosis. He is going to change from a worm that someone would squish into a beautiful butterfly that someone would collect. It is a total different image. And that's the power of the moment when God shows up on the mountain. Jesus unveils himself and lets his majesty come through. Majesty is a hard word to define, I think. But somehow, this Shekinah-like Old Testament fire glory fills up Christ and it's a little bit like he he diminishes his humanity and he lets he lets the majesty of his deity come through and glow and Peter James and John are privileged enough to wake up in time and see this white glow that is bleached beyond anything that any human could create that's what Mark said remember in verse chapter 9 verse 3 and Mark said no human being could make this happen. It was just like his face glowed and his clothing glowed and it was beyond bright and it's, you, you got to believe it like made him squint their eyes in the darkness of night. It's interesting to me that as Peter wrote his epistle and he wrote to a scattered church, right? He wrote to a church that was being persecuted at the end of our New Testament, First and Second Peter, are letters that are written to a dispersion of, of believers because of persecution by Nero. It was difficult days, and God never showed up. And they, and they watched their children get chewed up by hyenas in the, in the arena, and their wives slaughtered and raped and hung up naked and lit up as candles, and lions came and chewed them, and they lost everything they had, and they spread out, and they hid in caves, and they hid underground, and God never showed up, and God never showed up, and God never showed up. And Peter's writing to them to believe, believe, believe. And he wants them to know that they have a certain, sure word of prophecy. That's what he's writing about in 2 Peter chapter 1. You can trust this word and add to your faith all of these virtues. And God will do his work. 
And if Peter were here and you would raise your hand and you would say, well, why should we believe you? How come you think you know it? And he says to them in his writing to the dispersed believers in 2 Peter 1.16, and I copied it in the notes, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming. He's a real Lord Jesus. And I'm telling you, we're not talking myths. That's a common thing even in the church today in America. It's easy in our own community to find churches where the pastors will teach you that, that Adam and Eve are mythological characters. It's ridiculous. It's unfounded. There's no reason for it. It is the, the elevating of the intellect of man and the diminishing of the authority of Scripture is all it is. And furthermore, if Adam and Eve are mythological characters, then Jesus has to be a mythological character because in the Old Testament, the first Adam is compared to the second Adam in the New Testament. The New Testament holds up Jesus Christ as the second Adam, and it's important for one to, just as important for one to be a real, real person as the other to be a real person for them to do what they said they did. One sinned and brought sin into the world. The other died for the sins of the world and undid the work of the first Adam. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That, he's talking about this right here. That's what he's talking about. It could have included the glory of Christ after the resurrection. But we're going to find out later in the same passage of Scripture, the next two verses, he's going to talk about up on the mountain. He's talking about here. You want to know why I believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because he showed up one night and he showed his glory and I was an eyewitness. That's why. Convincing proof number one is the transformation of Christ himself. Uh, secondly, it's the identification of Moses and Elijah. And this is kind of an interesting thing. The identification of Moses and Elijah. Now, in verse 3 of chapter 17, it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? And the first question I have is, how do you know it was Moses and Elijah? And the Bible doesn't say. And I take it that there was an instantaneous understanding on the part of the disciples that they knew it was Moses and Elijah. It is possible that some character feature Gave it away. You know, Moses has a big stone. Charleston Hepton, um, what's his name, always had a big stone tablet and a stick, you know, and a big beard. You know, oh, that's Moses. We would know Moses if we saw him on Halloween on our front porch. We would know Moses. Yeah, you're Moses. And Elijah, he was a woolly old guy and a prophet. We don't know. It's not worth worrying about. They knew it was Moses and Elijah. It's, it's no big deal. It's easy. They knew it was. I don't know that Jesus said anything to introduce them or to indicate that that's who it was. Is it possible that they heard the conversation enough to understand that that's who they were speaking to? It's possible. It doesn't really matter. They knew it was Elijah and Moses. Why does their identification strengthen the faith of the disciples? You see, it was clear to them that it was Elijah, Moses, and Jesus, and that Jesus was not Moses or Elijah. And that matters because let your eyes go over to chapter 16 and verse 13, and this is that great exchange 
where Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, uh, Matthew 16, 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say, who do people say that the son of man is? What are people saying? Remember this passage? What are people saying? And they answered him and they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets that would include Moses. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Remember that great question? You see, another aspect of the transfiguration of Christ is to is to simply affirm the confession of Peter. Peter got it right. Peter got it right when he said, you are the Christ. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is letting Peter and the disciples see, you are right. Jesus is not Elijah and he's not some prophet back from the dead. He's Jesus alone. He's Christ the Messiah, son of man. Interesting how Peter waffled a little bit at different times. Interesting in that very account, remember, when Jesus then goes on to reveal to them that he is going to go to the cross and go to, the Jeru- go to Jerusalem and be hung on a cross and accomplish the plan of salvation and, and be killed by the religious leaders. Peter interrupts him and says, not on my watch, Lord, that will never happen. And Jesus looks at him and says, get out of my life, Satan. That is not what you're saying is not the will of God for me at all. And anybody who whispers in your ear something that is not the will of God is at least a first cousin of Satan. And Peter didn't get it all. He didn't get it all. And so that night on the mountain, he knows his confession was correct. And the third thing we have is we have the affirmation of the law and the prophets. We have the affirmation of the law of the prophets now, I emphasized when we were reading through Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 that they spoke of his departure. So get the scene. Peter, James, and John wake up. Jesus is there. He's glowing. Elijah and Moses are glowing. It is just totally weird. They've never seen anything like it. And they're having a conversation and Luke says they talked, they were talking about his departure and all that would unfold in Jerusalem. The redemptive story, the redemptive plan. Jesus going to the cross to die on the cross for the sins of the world, but rising again. And it is interesting that it's translated in the ESV, departure. That word in the Greek is literally exodus. They were talking about the Exodus. Now, isn't that interesting that Moses would be... I would say that Moses is pretty much an authority on the Exodus. Would you say? And they're talking about the departure. But Luke added the note that it was about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. But isn't Moses a type of Christ at at some level? A symbol? Doesn't Moses at some level represent a type of Christ? He, He was a deliverer. He was one who could see the promised land. And he knew that we needed to get from here to over there. And that we were stuck in the slavery and in the bondage of sin and of sinful people here. And that if we would go there, we would get where God wanted to bless us. 
And they were to, and he led them on an exodus. And isn't that what Jesus is, is going to do in Jerusalem? He's going to lead us on an exodus. He's going to lead us on a departure. Jesus is our deliverer. And he knows that we're stuck in sin and around sinful people and in a sinful world. And he can see the promised land and the new life in Christ and the spiritual life and forgiveness of sin. And he's going to lead us and show us the way. And he's going to exodus us out of there. So you have them talking about. What I think is interesting is that when you stop and think, why Moses and Elijah? That's one of the questions the commentators beat around. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, for one thing, in Israel of old and at the time of Christ, and even to this day, you would be hard-pressed to come up with two more familiar people of times past. Who are the most famous spiritual leaders in all of Israel of old? Well, you would have to say Moses. And Elijah is representative of all the prophets. He was such a dramatic, um, colorful, romantic figure. Not only that, remember we talked about the fact that signs and wonders didn't go on all the time. God didn't show up all the time, only at certain times with long gaps in between. And one of the times that God used to show up regularly is under the ministry of Elijah. And he showed up regularly under the ministry of Moses. And Moses represents the law, doesn't he? Who could represent the law more than Moses and so both the law, that would be represented by Moses, and the prophets, that would be represented by Elijah. What do they do? This is a statement in front of Peter, James, and John, that this is the Christ, and it is affirmed by the law, and it is affirmed by the prophets. They know who this is. Moses knows who this is. Elijah knows who this is. This is who they were writing about. You can put this in balance and in perspective by going to Luke 24. Don't do that right now. In Luke 24, you can read it later. You know the story pretty well. It's, it's the day of the resurrection and the word is getting out. And our Lord is out of the tomb, but he hasn't been seen by very many people. And there's these two gentlemen walking down the road. They were evidently believers and they couldn't put everything together. It's, we call it the road to Emmaus. And those two guys on the road to Emmaus were walking along and this stranger comes and walks beside them. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Because the stranger was Jesus himself. And they're talking and, they, and, and Jesus says, what's going on, basically? And they say, you don't know? You don't know? And they begin to tell him the times of the day. What happened? This is the headline today. Man, there was this guy, they gave up Barabbas for him and they nailed this guy to the cross and he was, gee, he did good works. I, I saw him one time, a guy with no hand, I saw him put a hand on the guy, it was unbelievable. I saw a guy with no, mo no nose from leprosy and he gave him a new nose and they crucified this guy. And he even raised the dead and it was unbelievable, he could calm this, and they crucified him, he's dead and we don't know what's going on and we're confused. And Jesus is walking along with them. They have no idea who they're walking with. It's cool. And you know what it says? It says, and he began with Moses and the law and went through the prophets. Jesus expounded the entire Old Testament as they walked and showed them how all of these things had to be. 
that the law and the prophets all pointed to Christ. And I think that is exactly the point of the transfiguration in the lives of Peter, James, and John, that they understand that the law and the prophets are revealing Christ right in front of their very eyes. Number four, we have the confirmation of the Father. This is simple. It's easy. It's not complicated because it's a loud voice that booms. And we can understand English, and evidently God speaks in English because this is what he said. <laughs> and Peter gives this suggestion that he doesn't know what he's saying, that they live in booths there on the side of the mountain. And he was still speaking, verse 5, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Wow. That's like Matthew 3, right, at the baptism? When John the Baptist had that affirmation. This is what I mean by confusing but convincing. Peter, James, and John look at each other and say, it's not in the Bible, I'm making this up. Did you hear that? Yeah, I heard a voice. What did the voice? The voice said, this is my son. Believe what he says. I'm pleased with him. I heard it. That's exactly what he said. You get this? I don't get this. I believe it. You believe it? I believe it, but I don't get it. You see, it's like, I have no idea what I just heard, where it, but God's voice just spoke. And he said, this is my son. Don't you think guys who are going to stand and have rocks thrown at them for living for Jesus and preaching for Jesus, that, that these moments in the back of their mind must have been so strengthening? I mean, later on in the streets of Jerusalem and, and in all the surrounding areas as Peter and James and John are preaching the gospel and people are throwing rotten tomatoes at them and whipping them with rods and putting them in jail, that they got rolling around in the back of their mind the very voice that they heard. This is my beloved son and I'm well pleased with him. Listen to what he says. And they had no doubt that they were serving the real deal. It was real. So the very voice of the Father is another convincing proof in this story. The confirmation of the Father's voice, the very voice of God. Peter did believe it. Look what he says in 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18. He said, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. There it is. We were with him on the holy mountain. We were there. We saw it. It was real. Finally, and this is kind of interesting, listen quickly and I'll explain it quickly. In verses 9 through 12, we have the conversation that they had with Christ. The conversation they had with Christ becomes part of the element that convinces them that they're working with the real deal here. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus then commanded them, tell no one the vision. So there's the command, verse 9, don't tell anyone. The main reason for that was Jesus knew there was a sovereign timetable of his plan to unfold, and it was going to be about six more months before he got to Jerusalem, and he didn't want to stir up the crowds, he didn't want to stir up the Pharisees, and for those purposes partly, just practical purposes, don't talk about this stuff right now, we got to kind of lay below the radar. Uh, he's focusing on teaching the disciples right now, not so much the crowds. And he just wants God's time to unfold. He doesn't want them to come after him and try to throw him off a cliff or have him assassinated until the time is right. So you have a command in verse 9. You have a question in verse 10. And the question comes out of nowhere. And this is where I want you to listen quickly. In just a couple minutes, you can understand exactly what's happening here. 
Okay? Tell no one the vision, the end of verse 10, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then the disciples asked him, and we know from Mark's account that they, were, they did question, what does he mean, raised from the dead? So that's on their mind. But what Matthew records, as well as Mark, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? There's the question. Okay, so this is kind of weird. They're coming off the mountain. They've had this awesome metamorphosis moment. And they're coming down off the mountain. And Jesus says, Moses and Elijah disappeared. And Jesus is back to normal. He's not glowing anymore. And they're walking down the mountain. And Jesus said, hey, boys, by the way, don't tell anybody about this. Just kind of keep this tucked in the back of your mind for now. All right? That's what I'm telling you. And the first thing they say is, look what they say. They say, and the disciples say, so why do the scribes and why do they say that Elijah must come? Where did that question come from? What, what, what do you do with that? Well, it's, it's easy to understand. You see, you have to understand in the Jewish mind, because of prophecy of the Old Testament, largely Malachi chapter 4, it is clear that Elijah would come before or as a forerunner of Messiah. So the men have just come off the mountain, are more convinced than ever that Jesus is Messiah. But now they can't get, how do we fit Elijah into this puzzle? See, don't tell anybody that you just saw Messiah glowing in the dark. What do we do with, what do we do with Elijah? Where did he come? What are we, aren't we supposed to look for Elijah? And we, we talked about this at different times, but even a couple weeks ago. I mean, I, I don't remember when about like the Seder Supper or, uh, you know, that in, in Passion Week, when you have a Seder Supper, they leave an empty chair. Is the empty chair for Elijah or for Messiah? It's Elijah. It's Elijah. And they let the child get up and go open the door. Looking for whom? Elijah. Why are they looking for Elijah? Because if Elijah comes, we know Messiah's coming. That's the big trigger. That's the trip point. Right? So they've just had this awesome revelation that Jesus is the Christ. And now they can't fit Elijah into the schematic. And so here's what it says. And the disciples asked then, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, easy, Elijah does come. It's not a problem. Elijah comes and he will restore all things. Now, here's what you need to listen closely. There is a principle in prophetic scripture and prophecies, there's often dual meaning. You find this regularly in Scripture. There is a here and now understanding, and then there is a prophetic, a prophetic unfolding of this thing. So there's like a compression of time or a stretching out of time, depending on how you look at it. He's, he makes this statement, and it's true right now, but it's also going to come true later in a different form. And so he goes on to explain himself. Here's what you need. Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. And the book of Revelation talks about this. In the book of Daniel, in the book of Ezekiel, and all the prophetic passages. And we know that Elijah will come right before the second coming of Christ. And, and he's going to have a key role in the end of the great tribulation period before Christ comes in his glorious second coming. And he will come, Jesus says. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. In other words, relax, guys. He already did come. You just didn't notice it. He came, and they did not recognize him, speaking of the, of the Jews, basically, and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. That means they cut his head off. 
The Gentiles did that. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer in the same way that they handled John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah, Luke chapter 1 says. So do not be confused. John the Baptist was not a reincarnation of Elijah. He came as a type of Elijah in the spirit of Elijah. And it fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi that the Israelites were looking for, that if Messiah comes, Elijah has to come first. And so there they are. And they, they get it. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, just like they killed John the Baptist. They'll kill me. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. There's the answer. Listen, the testimony of three reliable eyewitnesses is very convincing to me. Is it convincing to you? Listen, God might not show up here today. Part the waters. Help you walk through the fire. You might burn to a crisp. It doesn't mean that God is not faithful. It means that He's doing things we don't understand. And He's given us a sure testimony. And part of that short testimony so that we can have confidence in who Christ is. is These three guys that are laying on the ground on their belly, scared to death up on the side of the mountain, watching Jesus glow with his glory in the metamorphosis. And Elijah and Moses, the law and the prophets are there bearing testimony. And Jesus answers their questions and it all comes together. And Jesus is getting them ready. To stand alone with confidence when he goes back to heaven. Doesn't that make sense? Say yes, please. Yes, please. Will you stand with me, please? So, Father, would you strengthen our faith today? We admit that in our flesh and in our human logic, we would love to have some symbols or signs or dramatic entrances of you interrupting our day, parting the water, putting out the fire, healing broken limbs, raising the dead. Father, would you strengthen us in our faith as Peter reminded the dispersed church, he was there, he saw the glory, he heard the voice up on the mountain, and we have a sure word of prophecy that we can rely upon. And it's a true story. And Jesus is the Messiah. He wasn't Moses. He wasn't Elijah. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, born of Mary, our Savior at the cross. Now risen, ascended, seated at your right hand, waiting to come again. Would you strengthen us in our faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.